0: Forever.
1: Dog.
2: Just between
1: us. Hey. Just between
3: us. Hey. Hello, I'm Allison Raskin. I'm a writer, mental health advocate, and I'm humbly asking for you to subscribe to my Substack.
0: Hi, I'm Gabe Dunn. I'm a writer, bi-con, bisexual icon, wink, and listen to Bad With Money, my other podcast.
3: (laughs) I've been trying really hard to promote myself more, even though it causes me a lot of distress. And so if you aren't already, you can subscribe for free to Emotional Support Lady Substack, or you can be a paid subscriber for only $5 a month and receive access to a ton of backlogged paid posts and also all my posts moving forward. But I did a thing that I feel like you would be really proud of me for. Yes. So I've been really trying to make this a big goal of mine is to build this platform. And I was like connected to this woman at Substack who I think is like now supposed to be my contact there, which already asking for that was like whatever. And then and then I they launched this thing called Notes, which is like their version of Twitter, mm-hmm. basically. And I saw that some people were getting reposted by Substack. Yeah. And I like emailed her to be like, can you repost me? Exactly. But, like, I, I it didn't really work. Like it, the, the post still didn't really get any traction. <laughs> but I was like so proud of myself that I had like asked her to do that because I was like, this, I don't know if this is her job. I don't know if this is like me overstepping Babe, a boundary. Be, no,
0: you need to be doing that with every single thing that you do. Well,
3: I, I was really proud of myself that I did it.
0: Yeah, you need to be doing that with everything. I'm so proud of you, too. Thank you. I think you have to because you, you don't like people don't know to give you stuff. They don't know you want it.
3: Yeah. And like or like, what's the risk? She says no. And then I think because I've bought, I've been also kind of hounding her and I working with a publicist right now to try to like invest in myself and my projects like she reached out too. And so like now I think like my stuff's gonna get featured next month. And so it is like, okay, this feels so uncomfortable to do. It's not my instinct. It's like outside my comfort zone, but I have to just like keep asking for
0: stuff. And like, like your content, think of it as like your content is good and they always need stuff to promote. Like it's not like you're taking from them. It's like they, it's a two-way street. Like anything you make that's good. One, people should see it. And two. Like they they need things to put up to like for people to read.
3: Well, they have a lot of stuff for people to read. But yeah, like, you know, I think just like I'm just proud of myself. And I think also it's helpful when you do something that is hard to to tell other people so that they can say good job. Exactly. Because that's like validating. Even when I do like an OC, I overcome like an OCD moment where like I don't do something. I'll like report it to John so that he can like be proud of me. Yeah. Because then that's like a positive reinforcement for me to like keep doing those yes, things.
0: Yes, totally. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, I think, I mean, I've just been emailing like everybody and just trying. I've just been like, I don't even care. Overstepping is not a thing anymore. Like I'm just like, I just want stuff to get done and be made and I, and I don't, and like, I want the things to, to get traction and stuff. So I'm just like, oh, I don't even care if that isn't that Substack lady's problem. Like show me whose problem it is, you know?
3: Melissa, can we put my Substack in
0: the notes of this episode? We can put it in every episode. (laughs) You can, you can promote it at the beginning of every episode. Hi, I have another show called Bad With Money. Please listen to it. Melissa produces it. It's uh, on every Tuesday and Friday.
3: Wow, look at us. And we have our YouTube shows back every Thursday. Yes,
0: our YouTube channel on YouTube.com slash Just Between Us. We do a 10-minute, different, 10 to 12-minute, different couch show where we uh, talk about a topic. And we've been doing that, again, for the last, like, couple months.
3: Yeah, it's been fun. We know. We have JBU content now three times a week, baby.
0: Literally. That's on, what day is that? On Thursday. Thursday. We got
3: the pod on Monday, Wednesday, and the video on Thursday. Yeah. What and is then, this, and
0: 2015? Then, I know. And then if you want me... I'm available all week because I got bad with money Tuesday, Tuesday and Friday. And I have emotional support lady on Tuesday. You got to find a Friday gig. Damn it. <laughs> <laughs> well, this is just between us—a variety show filled with heartfelt advice, ridiculous games, and brutal honesty.
3: I'm also posting on the emotional support lady Instagram throughout the week. Yes, so that you do. counts. I don't yes. need a full Friday. Yeah, that's anyway. true. You do.
0: <laughs> and Melissa and I are working on my movie. Ooh, I know. So exciting that's how you talk about it and then someone who wants to help you is like hey I want to help you with this
3: if there are any book editors listening my novel is currently being
0: pitched to a variety
3: of places my
0: my novel as well
3: I wonder if there's any editor right now that has both our manuscripts right has both our novels and is like
0: and is like I could have a gold mine
3: I could have or I could really ruin this friendship (laughs) no they're very
0: different books they're extremely different books
3: (laughs) But we have got, I think, one of our most important episodes of all time today. Mm-hmm.
0: Yes. We talked to Andreina Ness all about uh, K-Town for All and that un- unhoused crisis in L.A. It's just like a really amazing interview. And you, you really, I please do us and the world a favor and listen to it.
3: Yeah. I mean, it, she does such a great job of breaking down the housing crisis, misinformation about it, what we can do.
0: Um, and this is stuff that you should listen to and tell other people about.
3: Yeah, if, you, if, you've, if you've been looking to share an episode, this, this, is, the this one. is the one. Um, not even for the parts we're in or talking about. But <laughs> yeah, just for, <laughs> just for Andreina. <laughs> and later, we're going to be talking about the WGA writers' strike because it will either be incredibly relevant when you're hearing this or think of the past, but it could go either way. So I well, think we should talk about unionizing is
0: important. It. Unionizing is important. Exactly, exactly. And
3: I have a feeling it will be very important when this comes out. But first, we have got to answer a listener's question. And you know what that means? Get it! International question! International question!
0: International
3: question! Robin, the Netherlands.
0: Ooh.
3: We've got some real international stuff happening lately. Robin says, hi, Allison and Gabe. First things first, I love your content. The podcast has really improved my life a lot. And I also really enjoy the new Reddit edition. Hell yeah. Thanks you so much. Yeah. That's a positive reinforcement, baby.
0: We love it. Thanks for liking our Monday show, baby.
3: Now my question. I'm a 26-year-old musician and piercer living in the Netherlands. So a real international question. I've been out as non-binary for about a year now, changed my pronouns to they, them, and started to present more gender neutral slash masculine. I also almost always wear a binder or a tight sports bra and recently tried trans tape for the first time. Mm. I've been really struggling with the decision whether or not to get top surgery for the following reasons. I do not really experience a lot of dysphoria when I'm naked by myself or with someone I trust. It's just that I really hate that most people associate breasts with women because I don't want to be perceived as a woman. My breasts are pretty small, so with a binder or tape, I can achieve the look of a flat chest and clothing. I'm scared that I will not like the results or that I will regret it later in life. I still often experience the imposter syndrome, a little voice in my head that says, you're just doing this for attention. You're not actually trans. On the other hand, I tried trans tape for the first time a week ago and almost cried because I felt this huge wave of gender euphoria from having a flat chest. I'm starting therapy soon to figure this out together with some other gender related stuff, like how to deal with being misgendered. But I really hope you too have some advice. I'm very bad at making decisions. I'm either very impulsive, probably because of my ADHD, or I just ignore the problem. I know Gabe has had top surgery a while ago and hope they have some tips or can share how this progress has been for them. Thank you so much. Even writing this down has helped already. Love you, Robin.
0: So I've talked about this on the YouTube show, but I'll say it here. Not having dysphoria is not the same thing as having euphoria. With Without top surgery, I was fine, neutral, whatever. That place is comfortable because it's the devil you know. But I took the leap because I was like, I could feel amazing. I could feel better. I could feel good. And I went in with doubts. I think there's a lot of narratives that want you to believe that there are no doubts, that everyone is, uh, has to be 100% sure. And if you're not, you're not trans and all this kind of stuff. And I do not regret it at all. I can 100% tell you it has improved my life so, so much in so many ways. Gender affirming care is so important. And it's not flippant. Like even you saying, well, I'm being impulsive or all that stuff. Like, I don't know you, but I think the amount of thought that you're putting into it, even to just write this or to do the trans tape or to do any of that, like, that's some, that shows that it matters to you. And, you know, I had some recent I always struggle with suicidal ideation. People that listen to this show know that's a thing that I'm constantly dealing with. And I had like a, a really bad day and a lot. some of it had to do with being trans. And I think that if I wasn't at the place in my gender affirming care that I am now, I might've gone through with it. And like, that's, I think that I don't know that I knew that about myself until... I had these things that made me feel so good because a lot of stuff was just sort of neutral. What I assumed like was, you know, the way that you had to live and be and having these things that all of a sudden you you can have these things that you thought were impossible. You can be happy. You can be more than just neutral. And you're talking about like crying from gender euphoria And like not necessarily, transness doesn't necessarily have to be this negative. I'm so upset. I'm so, you know, it's hard all the time. Like it can be giving yourself the gift of, wow, I feel amazing. And I think a lot of narratives have really made that hard for people because you do think it has to be this, I'm suffering all the time in this very obvious way when sometimes you don't even notice that you were suffering or that you would have been suffering until all of a sudden you you can't imagine your life any other way. Like I went into it with doubts, which a lot of people do. And I know you're not supposed to say that because the Republicans will come for you. But I do not regret it one bit. And I hear from so many people that they are worried they will regret it. And I hear from a lot of people and I and I don't want to, put my journey on anyone else. But some of you guys say stuff that I really said, like, I don't mind my boobs. I just wish I could retract them and put them and, and then put them back out whenever I felt like it. I wanted top surgery. No, I like my boobs. I just wanted them smaller. I just want them much, much smaller. You wanted top surgery. Like, and, and I think it's very scary. And yeah, like I had the ideas of like, okay, well, what if it turns out poorly? Which, whatever that means to you. What if, you know, nobody wants me? What if I'm, I change my mind? If you change your mind, you get implants. Plenty of people do it. Like, I just think that the the feeling, get, allowing yourself to have the gift of feeling really, really good rather than just like, okay, That's that to me is an important part of transness that I don't think gets spoken about. I think... The imposter syndrome of it is like, some days I do go like, I'm just like me. I'm not trans. Like, I'm not, I'm just like me. I'm just myself. Which like, I think there are a lot of people who get top surgery who are not trans. There are a lot of people who get all kinds of surgeries that are not not trans. They just, I think it's hard because we're fighting this war against like, to even have access to these things. But the like galaxy brain version for me is that like, regardless of whatever, everybody, your gender, what, everybody should be able to make themselves look how they want to look. Like everybody should be able to have any sort of access to any sort of gender thing and mix and match however you want. And you don't have to put a label on that. That's That's my beautiful future that I imagine. But that's not everybody's ideal future. I understand people might have different ideas of that. And like, I get it. one thing that's wonderful is that the community is not a monolith, but I do think that this like I'm not trans enough doesn't really matter like you're- pr- proving yourself to who, and also like it just matters. it's this thing of like, well, what if i what what if I regret it or what if no people aren't attracted to me or anything like that. But like if you feel good and you're suddenly yourself and you suddenly feel like confident, that oftentimes parlays into suddenly people are like, wow, I really am drawn to you. Or I really I do you suddenly are just not just on mute, but you're rather like, I don't know, a version of yourself that is is more, is, is more or is something that you didn't even think you could be. I think it's, it's hard to be prescriptive because I don't want to say it's hard to hear people say things that I said at the beginning of my journey and not be like, babe, you know?
3: Yeah. I mean, I can't speak to the gender identity, that kind of questioning of it all, but I will say in terms of fear around a big decision and like the fear of, of impulsivity, it can be kind of helpful to give yourself a date in the future to make the decision. Mm -hmm. So to say, I don't need to decide this today. I'm going to decide this in three months from now. Mm -hmm. And then you put in your calendar that that's the day that you're going to (laughs) decide. And then it kind of gives your brain space in the next three months to sort of figure out what you're leaning towards, mm-hmm. like you, you know, you don't even necessarily have to like sit and think with it all day mm-hmm. to be like, because in your head you're like, well, I have three months to figure this out. You know, I feel sometimes it can be like, but what do I want? I got to figure it out right now. Do I want to do this or do that? Mm-hmm. Giving yourself some time can kind of like let things percolate, and then also if at the end of that three months you're still leaning towards surgery, you know that it's not an impulsive decision, right. and you can move forward with more confidence and more. And and hopefully, you know, less worry. But like what Gabe said, there's always going to be an element of worry whenever we make a huge life decision. Even if, even if 90% of us knows in our bones that it will make us happy, mm-hmm. it is difficult to ignore societal narratives that that kind of decision is a mistake or that there's a chance of a mistake. Mm-hmm. So I think giving yourself just some time to just like be able to Prove that it wasn't impulsive mm-hmm. will hopefully make the journey easier. And, and logistically, if you're getting therapy of whatever, it's like probably that three months is right around when things would be happening yeah. anyway. But mm-hmm. I think it's like just letting your brain take a little pause so that you can check in with what you want. Mm-hmm. Like you will maybe have moments of clarity by allowing yourself to not have to overthink it all the time.
0: I think also talk to other people who've had top surgery. Mm hmm. I think absolutely talk to other people who've had top surgery or people who've decided, you know, maybe not to. Or I talked to a bunch of my friends. I picked my surgeon from talking to friends and also because it was covered by insurance. You know, I mean, I had a breast reduction and that ended up being not what I wanted. And like life just keeps moving. Like as, you know, I had to, the surgery had to be done a certain way to, to in, Compass the scars from my other surgery. Do I regret that I had that surgery? Yeah. I could have just had top surgery, but I didn't know that at that time. Like you go with what you know. And like, it, I always think like transness is sometimes dealt with, with evidence, but I can only go on what I know would make what I know right now. Like I can only go on what, I don't know. Like it impulsive is sort kind of a funny word. It's kind of a funny word. Cause it's like, you can only go based on what you know about yourself at this point. And so if you, even like at the, if, if you had like one month of the three months, you're like, you know what? I'm convinced.
3: Totally. And the three months thing is, is not a hard and fast rule, no, right? And it's it was. not I even like, it was. oh, at three months, you're like, I don't feel ready for the surgery. That doesn't mean you can't
2: change think, your mind. Change oh, your for mind. Sure. Think yeah. about it.
3: It's just a way, I think, to take the pressure off of you yeah. to solve it right now. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because yeah. I think that that can be really tricky. And I think also like, like you said, like it, to you, it's like not impulsive. But for some people, there's elements of their personality that they're aware of.
0: Yeah, that they don't want to. And, yeah.
3: and like I'm somebody who's kind of impulsive. And so I've had to learn how to like take a second. Mm-hmm. And like, you know, and so when I want to do something all at once, I will go, well, Allison, you do have this history. And so, yeah. you know, like people have different contexts that they're bringing mm-hmm. with their own brain. And so mm-hmm. it's just a way to like take the pressure off. Yeah.
0: Yeah. I think it's tough because it's this this twofold of needing to be like a a voice saying gender affirming care, you know, and then also this thing of like, and people are people and you're never going to be, I I don't know, like just because you're not 100% sure, then all these sort of transphobes and conservatives are like, see, this is the, this is social contagion. And it's like, well, no. Like, it's that people have more options to understand their own minds and their own dysphoria and their own euphoria. And they have more examples and more language. Whereas, like, in the past, these people would have either done stuff secretly or they would have killed themselves or they would have, like, been unhappy. So, like, you know, that's really the the whole thing. And, like...
3: And also releasing yourself from my individual decision is representative of is this political. whole group. I know. It's political. You I gotta know. just... I know it's hard, but it's not. And it's, you have to just put yourself first.
0: And it is hard. I don't want to make it seem like after I got top surgery, like I like it is an interesting thing. You get top surgery and you are treated differently or you are seen, you know, I mean, not, you, you it depends on the type of surgery you have. I had double incision. So I have the scars under the nips. And that's like, you know, if I go to the pool or somewhere like that's, there's no hiding that. Like, you know, you are marking yourself as trans in a way, or you're marking yourself as different or whatever. And I don't want to say that that's not a difficult thing. It is, but you also get to be seen how you want to be seen. That's the trade off.
3: Well, we hope that helped. I I think it it probably did. Um, because you were very eloquent oh thanks but if you want to submit your international question you can send it to justbetweenuspod at gmail.com that's just between us pod at gmail.com
0: up next we've got an exciting interview with our highly esteemed guest Andreina Gness stay tuned just
3: between Welcome back to Just Between Us. It's time for the juiciest, most scandalous, most controversial segment known to all of podcasting.
0: Tough questions. Our guest is Andreina Nis, who is an organizer with K-Town for All, focusing on direct outreach and advocacy with unhoused communities. Hello.
3: Hi. Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, Living in Los Angeles, the housing crisis is abhorrent and in our face, and it feels like... Why can't anybody figure this out? You know, and so what kind of led you to doing this kind of work, and and how important is it?
1: Yeah, I think I felt exactly the same way as you put it. Uh, once you get to Los Angeles and you walk around, like there's no ignoring the problem because it's so in your face. Um, and I think everyone. I'm speaking for myself as a millennial, but I think everyone in my age cohort has had a friend that needed to like sleep on their couch because a lease fell through or, you know, they are they broke up and they can't afford their place alone or they just, you know, don't have support. And I think that's becoming more and more common. So I moved to Los Angeles about four years ago. I'm a SoCal native, but um, we... Uh, had lived in San Francisco for a while uh, while my husband went to law school. And while I was in San Francisco, I did eviction defense at a legal aid. So I was seeing people going through this eviction process. And most of my job was telling people, like, there was nothing we can do. Like, the laws have been written for landlords by landlords. So that was my first introduction into, like, mass displacement was the eviction machine in San Francisco. And there was like a massive eviction wave at the time. It was a really, really big period of displacement. Daly City, South San Francisco, like all those places around San Francisco were going through a massive gentrification. So it was buildings being emptied out and turned into Airbnbs. And that was all allowed because there's nothing not allowing those things. So after that, we, uh, my husband graduated law school and, and we moved back to LA. We always wanted to live down south where I'm from. And I started working in fair housing discrimination litigation. So that's more uh, race-based discrimination. So we would test buildings, send in testers, uh, you know, a black person applying, a white person applying, an Asian person applying and see how they were treated differently. And that just opened my eyes to housing discrimination and um, how subtle it is now. They're no longer calling you a slur. They're telling you that this unit is not available for two months, but they're telling the white person it's available tomorrow. kind of thing. Oh yeah.
3: So you, so I I love this idea of sending spies. Uh, (laughs) It feels like very like a, um, you know, undercover movie, but like, so can you even extrapolate even more on that? Like what you, what these experiments are really showing?
1: Yeah. Fair housing is so great. I've never had like such a high in my career as like making a landlord pay someone a ton of money because they were like assholes to someone who was trying to rent an apartment from them because of their race. So yeah, basically um, we would get a phone call, a complaint from someone saying like, Hey, everything was going perfectly fine. And then I show up and I'm a person of color. And then they told me like, Oh, actually there was a mistake. It had been rented last week. Or one of the biggest signs that we found like discrepancies, it's this subtle, subtle discrimination that has really big impact is like This building's full, but we have another building that is still has some opening. And then they would direct all the black people there, (sighs) you know, like that kind of subtle thing. Or uh, you were a woman with a child. You know what? This building is not the vibe for a family. Like we have another family friendly building. And then they would direct you. It's called steering uh, is the fair housing term. So there, there's a lot of undercover, I would say undercover, but just like okay. subtle discrimination that they've gotten really good at. Um, and you can't tell until you send in those testers. So we had testers, they were paid a small stipend to go into these places, submit the exact same qualifications. So everyone's like, you've got a 750 credit score, you make 100K a year, you are an engineer at, you know, Salesforce or whatever. Um, And so we would send people in there with very similar life stories. And then they would just write down what happened. So, you know, the white person, the manager told me the move-in date is tomorrow. I don't have to pay a deposit. My credit score was excellent. And uh, he called me after the walkthrough to make sure that I had gotten the online application fine. And then the Black and Latino tenants would be like, this man only showed me one unit that was under construction, told me a it wouldn't be available for five months. And he didn't call me afterwards to follow up. So once you see things like that, you realize, like, okay, like they're trying to fill this building with a specific type of person. So, all in all, to wrap up to answer the fl- first question, seeing eviction from beginning to end and seeing uh, racial discrimination and uh, disability discrimination, familial status discrimination, and how like the rippling effects that had, like think of that, like these giant landlords have 10,000 units that they're doing this all in their properties too. Like they're doing this at all of them, like the order comes from the top down, what kind of people we want here, how you can discriminate legally against them without getting caught and seeing all of these pieces kind of put together and then seeing the massive amounts of unhoused people on the street. You just put the pieces of the puzzle together like these things are firmly connected and getting to Los Angeles I have always been an activist like all my life just by happenstance I was the child of farm workers when I was small so growing up undocumented I was like super involved in the DACA movement and uh, like immigrants rights movements farm workers rights movements just like inherently because of who I was as a person And then as I got older, um, housing became my thing. I've always been very housing oriented. So it became a thing when I moved here to LA, like I am doing this work to keep people housed and to make these housing providers, you know, change via force their policies. Um, But then there's these 60,000 people already on the street that need like a tent right now. So I ran into K-Town for All on social media And I started coming out to outreach, which, you know, would change the course of my life where we're at right now. It's been four years later. And I just got to know people that lived on the street. I got to know their stories. I got to ask them, you know, tough questions myself um, and answer some tough questions myself as a person uh, attempting to help them. And I got to learn, you know, how the L.A. homelessness system works, uh, what resources there are for people. Surprise, there's not that many. Mm-hmm. So that's basically from beginning to end, how I ended up here.
0: When you do those tests, like what is the recourse? I mean, what you find out all these things, and then you are saying that a lot of them are done legally, or saying, oh, we have this other building or whatever, like, what, what do you do then? It, once you figure out that that's what's happening.
1: So as I said, people would call in complaints, but we would also do them randomly. So we would do like a random lottery of we would type in an address of an apartment building in Los Angeles sometimes and then show up with these testers. So if we got a positive test, so like a positive test for discrimination, we sent in testers either because of a complaint or a random selection. Then at that point, you start building a litigation case, like a lawsuit for discrimination. So if this sounds familiar to anyone, please reach out to your local fair housing enforcement agency. Every county has one. In Los Angeles, it's the Housing Rights Center. So at that point, as a fair housing agency, we would start building a case. So we would send in maybe two or three rounds of testers just to make sure that that one wasn't a fluke, that that one wasn't just one manager like with a personal bias, which is still illegal. You're not allowed to just be a one manager. But when it's two or three managers and they're different people, you know, it's coming from the top and mm-hmm. the more tests that you have. And sometimes we'll send in different categories of people. So a person in a wheelchair, you know, how do they treat a disabled person? How do they treat a person with children? Kind of covering that. And I think that ties back around to Black people making a disproportionate amount of unhoused people in Los Angeles. It, it really can't be ignored that they're such a small portion of a population around 8%, they make about 50% of unhoused people in Los Angeles. And when you look at, you know, fair housing discrimination and housing discrimination in general, like those things line up really well. So what are
3: these other larger forces at play? I think that like, you know, a lot of us kind of grew up with this narrative of like, oh, people become unhoused due to their own bad decisions or due to substance use or due to something that is indicative of who they are as a person. And obviously I, I've now like realized that none of that's true. It's a way to make you feel safe, right? It's a way to like make it feel like this isn't as horrific of a human crisis as it is, right? By blaming them. But what are these bigger forces that are causing such unbelievable, like, housing crisis in so many major cities?
1: People don't like to hear this very simple answer, but it's the housing. It's the housing being very expensive. Other states than California, you know, when we compare them, have higher drug usage rates, have higher mentally ill rates. Uh, Tennessee has a higher per capita usage of drugs. They have way less unhoused people than we do uh, per capita. And that's because the housing's cheaper. A lot of people do drugs in their homes. A lot of people do drugs. You know, a lot of people are mentally ill in their homes, uh, in cheaper areas. And that's not possible in California. In California, you slip up once, you could be the most sober, mentally stable, Zen person, and your life is completely derailed. You know, I, I think... At this point, politicians in particular really love to stress that this is a mental health and drug issue because then they don't have to challenge developers. They don't have to challenge the cost of housing. They don't have to address sticky, controversial topics like rent control. These massive corporations pay a lot of money to these campaigns for these politicians. They pay a lot of money to lobby politicians. The California uh, Apartments Association is a massive lobbying group that spends millions and millions of dollars to defeat, like, rent control measures um, and things like that. And there's a massive criminalization uh, element, too, where people, particularly, you know, big cities that are supposed to be progressive, San Diego, Los Angeles, think that by putting these people in jail, like, they'll straighten up or whatever that means, you know, like, this will get rid of them. That's been really challenging. And there's a massive narrative that I think takes the blame off politicians when you make it an individual problem. Like these people made bad choices. They chose to do drugs and now they're on the street is like a very easy narrative to tell people. But we know from data and we know, you know, anecdotally, the vast majority of the people that I talk to that are on drugs that are, you know, willing to confide in me that they're addicted to drugs started doing drugs after they ended up on the street to cope. Mm -hmm. A lot of them, particularly women, transgender women, LGBT folk that are particularly vulnerable on the streets, they'll do meth to stay up at night so that they can like be awake at night and stay safe. And then they'll do heroin in the morning to go to sleep, mm. you know, or to sleep through the trauma. Yeah. That's like a common, you know, cycle I've heard of as, as why people do drugs when they start sleeping in like encampments and things like that. Mm-hmm. So it's a little bit of everything. But at the end of the day, it's the cost of housing. None of these people on the street can afford to pay a $10,000 deposit or Mm -hmm. like make triple the amount of rent Mm -hmm. that you have to make to get a unit. I mean, myself as like a fully employed house person applying to an apartment and it's just like competing with the upper echelon, like in these cities of credit and income that -hmm. you just really can't compete with sometimes. And imagine a person that has been unhoused right now that is unhoused. They can be completely sober and fully zen. If you know, they could be this very special person that has managed to come out of homelessness unscathed, but they still can't afford the rent. They can't afford the deposit, and they don't have good credit after being unhoused. So, what are we going to do with those people if they're forced to look for a place in this market that we know is very challenging?
0: I mean, even if the people, even if they have a drug addiction or a mental illness or anything, like the answer is still to give them housing. But why, why don't they do that? And why is it just not like, and we're putting them in these houses? I think people are like, well, then we'll put them in these houses and then they'll just destroy them. And, do, you know, I don't know, like, just just give them housing. Like, I don't understand what why.
3: The housing doesn't exist. Like the but- housing in LA, it doesn't exist. And all of these companies are, are preventing it from existing, right? And like yeah. the- the developments that are happening aren't low-income housing where there's like
1: two units that are low, right? That's exactly it. There is no place for these people to go. I think there's this giant myth that like unhoused people right now aren't taking the help that's out there. That's something I hear a lot. Like these people don't want help. You know, they say help as this big like cloud. You know, there's no specificity there. They don't want help. They've been offered help and they won't take it. And then I offer people like, okay, be more specific, like what kind of help have they been offered? Because I talk to people all the time and they get told like, if you give up your tent and all of your supplies and your pet, we might be able to put you up in a shelter for three months. And then if you can't find permanent shelter by then, you go back on the streets. So for a lot of people, it's like, well, then why would I go in the shelter if I'm going to if there's no place for me to permanently go at the end of those three months, because shelters are often temporary. Why would I give up everything I own right here in my tent plus my pet uh, if I'm going to end up on the streets again? Right. It becomes a cycle of like, well, these people aren't taking the help. And then it's like, well, those people don't want that kind of help. I often cite these numbers, like the number of shelter beds available in L.A. is about 14,000 if we're being generous to like 18,000. And we have counted about 60,000 on
0: house people at the last count. Right just a massive disparity. I mean, but then all these politicians get, you know, all this stuff like, what are you going to do about homelessness in L.A.? You know, what are you going to do about Skid Row and stuff? And It's like, well, then what what why not just fix it? Yeah, I mean,
1: I think it goes back to the money. I mean, it's I can't imagine how many billionaires you would piss off if you built the amount of public housing we need, Ugh. because that takes money from the market. You know, like If a landlord is renting a unit for an extraordinary amount of money and there's two or three families living in there that would otherwise be in public housing, like they're losing that money. And I don't know if there's any politicians in L.A. that want to challenge that money. A lot of those people fund a lot of campaigns. They fund a lot of uh, fundraisers like they they're you know, big donors in in these circles. They even donate a lot to nonprofits. Like a lot of the non-housing nonprofits get donations from some of these same orgs. And the the end solution is there's always going to be disabled people, whether it be physically or mentally. And there's always Mm going to be seniors. There's always going to be these people who cannot participate in our housing market as it is right now. Like they just will never be able to. They just will never be able to sustain a tenancy in a traditional market what do we do with those people? Like we have to have a social housing net to catch those people that will never be able to participate in the market. And right now it doesn't exist. A a couple months ago, the LA uh, Housing Authority opened up their applications for vouchers and it was to get on the waiting list for maybe getting a voucher one day. So it wasn't even like you were going to get a voucher if you got on this list. And it was, I think, 450,000 families applied for 30,000 wait slots. Oh, my God. And the wait time right now is about 15 years to maybe get a voucher. And more depressingly, the utilization of our voucher rates is so low because landlords won't take them. So imagine you get through this whole system and at the end you have a voucher in your hand. You've waited for years and years. It's a lottery system, too. So it's not just like I waited my time and got one. It's like they pull lottery numbers uh, from the pool. And then, okay, your number's called. You have a voucher in your hand. Landlord won't take it. What's the voucher meant to do? Sorry. So the voucher is this private-public partnership uh, meant to house people where the government pays part of your rent. That's basically the program. There are far too few of them. And I, I'm not a big voucher fan because I, I do believe they suck up money that should otherwise be set, like spent on public housing. And it's given to these private landlords to subsidize people's housing. But then the landlords won't even accept them. Yeah, and a lot of times landlords won't accept them because the voucher comes with some strings. One of them is the unit has to be habitable and they do yearly inspections that the unit is habitable. And a slumlord is not going to, want to have anyone checking on the habitability of their unit, frankly. You would think, you know, a smart landlord would be like, wow, the government guarantees me ninety percent of this rent every month without me doing anything. Like it's a hundred percent guaranteed the government's gonna deposit money into your bank account that month. And they just won't take them. The the landlords won't take them. We have and when the landlord won't take them, you have six months to use your voucher. Uh, If you don't use it at the end of the six months, it expires, which is the case for the vast majority of people who get these vouchers. And that's the system we have. (laughs) I mean, obviously, you know, the work you're doing is up against
3: so much structural oppression. But like if you had a magic wand to
1: pass one law, like what would that law be? Like where do we start to unravel this? Frankly, I mean, the first thing would just be like fun public housing. Like there should be and, you know, as I said before, like this market just doesn't work for a big portion of people, whether it be because they're poor, whether it be because they're mentally ill, because they're physically disabled, they're just not going to survive in this market. So if we, if they can't survive in this market, like we as a society have to decide that this is unacceptable. Like it's unacceptable that 60,000 people are sleeping outside at night today. It's unacceptable that just because you don't have enough money, like you have to live in squalor on the streets like that shouldn't mm-hmm. be acceptable. I would just, you know, we're spending a big portion of our budget building permanent affordable housing, every single piece of land that the city of L.A. O- owns, which is a lot of it, is directly stop building shit. We got to build buildings like you, know, that mm-hmm. would basically be my order. This is not being treated as a crisis, like it's not being treated with urgency, like there's this calmness that like really depresses me honestly sometimes because it's like another mayor's in like another city council person gets elected like maybe a few units go up here and there and it's like there's no franticness where every day five unhoused people die in LA and I think people don't understand that being homeless is deadly in itself I think Mm -hmm. some people are like it's like camping you know in a Mm -hmm. tent But the health hazards that come from being outside are just so dangerous. You know, being elderly in the heat, you know, when we've had those heat waves, like that's deadly. Being wet in the rain when we had these storms, like imagine being outside and trying to stay dry in that. And people, I think, think the social safety net there to catch us is bigger than it is.
0: Mm -hmm. We're going to take a quick break for commercials and we'll be right back with our guest. we're back is it just an empathy gap like what is i mean i'm like literally being like why are people bad and i know that but like (laughs) you know like i just it's just are there other countries where this is handled differently is this like an american issue
1: there's a a rising housing crisis in a lot of countries particularly western countries like ours that have like the same housing model So like Canada is having a housing crisis like really badly. The Same thing. Speculators are buying up a bunch of property, uh, raising rents. Australia is having very similar problems. So it's not just an American problem. But the amount of apathy we have towards solving the problem, I feel like, is uniquely American. And I think the answer that you're looking for, I think it's like misinformation. I think the average human, maybe I'm being like annoyingly optimistic, but I think the average person is pretty good. Like I've, I've seen a lot of kindness on the streets while I'm out doing outreach. I've seen people who drop off meals just on their own volition. I've seen people drop off clothing, you know, like there's people that care. And I think the fact that these people are alive is testimony that people care, you know, obviously not as much as we should, but there's a lot of people doing a lot of work, unpaid, you know, K-Town for All volunteer members. You know, an entire Saturday every weekend to be out there giving people supplies and things like that. But I do think there's a lot of misinformation um, because I talk to people who are like freshly unhoused. like it's their first week outside after being housed their whole life. And they ask me, like, where do I go to sign up for a free apartment? Like, where do I go to, you know, I'm a veteran. Like where do I go to get a like veterans apartment or something? And I have to break the news to them, like, well, like, this is how the voucher system works. These are the housing projects you can apply for. The wait list for each one of those is individual. It could vary from decades to more decades. And a lot of people are shocked to hear that. And I think that's that's where a lot of this lack of urgency and support comes from, is that we get told, particularly by those that want to criminalize the unhoused, is like, there's a lot of help out there. They're just not taking it. Right. Mm, mm-hmm. And it's not until you see the numbers, not until you see like how many public housing units we have and how many unhoused people we have and how many shelter beds we have that you're like, wait a minute, like they've been offered shelter and they didn't take it. It's like, okay, well, we know that there's maybe 14,000 beds to 60,000 people. What do you right. mean they're not taking shelter?
3: Plus, shelters are not necessarily a safe, good option for a lot of people, right?
1: No. Um, shelters in Los Angeles, are very scary. I would probably never go into a shelter uh, from what I've heard. Um, most people prefer to stay outside. They're very carceral. They're literally like jail. They take up your entire day to get a bed. You have to get in line early in the morning. You get inside and then you have to leave at a certain time. So you can't really hold down a job because they won't take you if you're like going in and out. Once you're in, you're in. Um, you can't have food in there, you can't have supplies in there. You've got to, again, give up your pet or if you have one, give up your belongings. You can't go in there with like your tent and your supplies and stuff. So you basically have to choose like, do I go into this shelter that's like dangerous? Some of them are like religious, which Mm -hmm. is a point that's dangerous for like LGBT folks. Like there's, I won't name this charity, but they should really reflect on their actions where to get uh, food and a bed, they make you attend mass. And they also take your phone from you when you enter the building. So there's just like there's a ton of good and bad, you know, like companies, like the same thing goes for nonprofits dealing Mm -hmm. with homelessness. Like there's some really great ones where I know people have found support and help and, you know, uh, they speak really highly of. And then there's some where I'll probably only go in there if I'm dying of like hypothermia, maybe. Like it ranges. And the thing that's, Probably confusing to
3: people is like in LA at least there is this huge portion of the budget that is supposed to be going towards the housing crisis. But can you talk a bit about how those funds are being misused and like not helping and more just like
1: criminalizing? Yeah, a big giant portion of that money goes to sweeps. Sweeps are very expensive.
0: Explain what those are because I'm those are uh, horrible.
1: Yeah, so I'm in CD ten and we have Care Plus sweeps. It's as dystopian as it sounds because they do not, in fact, care plus. They show up. What? Yeah, they call them care plus sweeps. So they show up. Most of L.A. is under a forty-one eighteen zone now. Forty-one eighteen was the bill passed earlier. uh, This measure in Los Angeles that criminalized the laying down, sleeping, camping in public. And it's those signs. If you walk around Los Angeles, you've probably seen them and it says, you know, no keeping of public property. And it shows a little map of what the sign applies to. And it says like every week there will be a sweep here and we don't have the infrastructure to keep those sweeps up weekly. So enforcement's really political. So there might be a sign that goes up and there's never a sweep there. But there might be a sign that goes up and there sweeps there constantly because people keep calling in complaints or, you know, someone important lives there and they need to clear that area for whatever, you know,
0: events. Or they're filming something. Yeah,
1: filming events, um, you know, business owners call in a lot of complaints, things like that. So, you know, what it looks like for an unhoused person is sanitation rolls up, usually accompanied by the LAPD usually like two or three or four cops standing there and the care plus sweeps are supposed to uh, also have a social worker with them offering some sort of support or, Mm, you know, offer of shelter that is rare. And it's actually made our job harder because the social workers show up first and then the sweep happens. So now people are really, really sketched out if someone shows up offering help mm. because they think that a sweep is gonna follow right after. Oh so we've had to be like way more explicit in being like, we don't work for the city, we're no we're not related to anything that they're doing. But people, of course, are suspicious. And then when they show up, they give you a time frame if they feel like it. They're supposed to give you time to move uh your belongings. Sometimes they hand people trash bags and they hold out a timer of how long you have to move your belongings. Obviously, if you're disabled, you're in a wheelchair, you don't have hands or legs, that might be very challenging. If you're elderly, breaking down your tent is very difficult, putting it back up, like finding everything that you want to keep is very difficult. So, at that point, they sanitation starts tossing everything once the time is up. They're supposed to have storage. There's like a mythical room that they're supposed to take people's belongings to and store them in. I have not seen anyone successfully recover their belongings from that storage system that may or may not exist. And so people are left with nothing. And in some areas, this is weekly. So like this happens to them every week and they either put up with it and like live lighter, have less supplies, you know, less items for people to throw. Or they move around a lot more, which is what we've seen. So we used to see camps every single week for years. There were people that I knew for a long, long time that now are moving around everywhere that I've never seen again since the sweep started uh, becoming this aggressive. So basically at that point, people will lose like ID cards, uh, medication, like psychiatric medication, heart medication. And if you're unhoused, getting prescription medication is very, very difficult and getting it replaced is, you know, impossible, basically. Um, We've known someone who passed away from a cardiac event after their heart medication was thrown out uh, during a sweep because they couldn't replace it fast enough and they had a heart attack and died um, Mm -hmm. afterwards. They have no regard to like what the things are. Like they're not going to look through things and be like, oh, let's not throw away IDs or whatever. They just... Grab the entire tent, and toss it. Usually, so we've seen people lose, you know, pictures of family, ashes of loved ones and pets, medication, uh, birth certificates, ID cards, things that set them back so significantly that it this sweep traps people in homelessness. Basically, like applications for housing are gone. You don't have like receipt numbers for benefits, like that's all gone. Um, your food stamp card, like gone. And this happens constantly, especially when neighborhoods call in like complaints. This is what happens. I think a lot of people don't understand what happens when you call in complain about an encampment. Like you would hope they would send social workers out and then they get put in their government subsidized housing the week after or whatever. But most likely they came, threw everything away in the trash and then just hope they wouldn't come back.
0: <sighs> it's heartbreaking.
1: So like as an individual, you know, who thinks this is
3: wrong which I hope is all of our listeners you know what do you do like let's say you know you don't have necessarily the ability to to volunteer as extensively as you do which is absolutely amazing and I'm blown away by it but like how can you feel like you're not at least making it worse or how like what's like what individual steps as we try to shake down the structural oppression can we take?
1: I think number one is be educated. Like, I don't think there's a single person I've met in LA that like homelessness doesn't come up in conversation. Like when you meet them Mm -hmm. at some point or another, whether there's like a camp near them or they had a scary incident with someone or like they know someone. And I think it's important to just be like armed with the knowledge, like Oh, well, you know, when someone makes a comment, like these people just don't want help. And it's like, well, actually, like I learned, you know, last week that there's like a massive shortage of housing. You know, the vast majority of renters in L.A. are rent burdened, which means they're like one paycheck away from homelessness. There's, you know, a severe lack of shelter beds. And so it's not that people don't want help. It's that there is none for their, you know, for them to access. And I think that in itself is powerful because if you listen to local media, you would think like these people are turning down apartments left and right and they just mm-hmm. like love living outside, which is not the case. The I would venture to say strongly 100% of the people I talk to would rather be inside than outside. Mm-hmm. The like mythical, like person who enjoys living outside. There's some people that make the best out of the situation they have, I will say. Like they optimistically do the best they can and try to, like, enjoy the little things. But if they had the option, like, do you want an apartment for yourself, for you to live in, that, like, you would never be kicked out of because you can't afford it? Like, you know, I can't imagine that anyone would turn that down. But that's not an offer they're getting. They're getting, Mm -hmm. like, do you want a crusty shelter bed? Um, So I think clarifying that for people is really, really important in our friend groups. And that just, like, dispels a little bit of that narrative. And it dispels a little bit of the blame politicians want to dispel off of them. Like actually the California Apartments Association and the realtors, you know, mm-hmm. orgs like fight rent control, which means that people get massive increases, which mm-hmm. means that they're displaced. I think like that kind of pushback is really, really important in our circles mm-hmm. because it prevents the demonization of people. And it, and it prevents this from being seen as an individual problem. Like this needs a structural response. This is not this is not one person that made a bad choice. When it's 60,000 people living outside, you know, it's like a societal problem. Mm-hmm. And secondly, I really suggest people like, don't be intimidated. I've probably been to hundreds of encampments by now and spoken to thousands and thousands of people. And I'm not a professional social worker. Like I, you know, at this point I've taken like de-escalation trainings and like trauma informed, like volunt- you know, like all these trainings. But I was, I'm just a person, all of my friends who volunteer with K-Down for All, like we all have ran, like we have audio engineers, we have like teachers, actors, like random people who have just like felt called to do something. Um, So don't feel like you have to be like a social worker to give someone a meal, like when you have an extra $10 or to say hi, you know, like these people live around you. And a lot of the times people won't even look them in the eye or like acknowledge them. Like, you know, one person told me, like, it's been about a month since anyone talked to me, like in downtown Los Angeles, like imagine living in a massive city and no one will look you in the eye or talk to you like that's so damaging. And that's what alienation is. That's what, you know, othering is, is like, this person's not human. I'm not going to react to them like I would any other person that approached me. And I think that's kind of something that KFA pushes is like, you don't have to set up like a giant mutual aid station at your house you could just give someone a lemonade on a hot day or a frozen water bottle right now the the heat waves are starting up we do this big campaign where it's like put some frozen put some water bottles in your freezer right now and hand them to someone when you're walking around that's unhoused you know like that could save someone's life uh during these heat waves don't think just because you're like a person that you can't make like a small positive impact on someone's life that like eases their suffering a bit like that's what we're all trying to do and I don't want people to be like oh well I haven't ever done this before like I'm so nervous to try it because at the end of the day like the vast majority of my experiences people have been very thankful and happy to have any human connection and to receive any supplies you might give them like it's really rough out there and that one water bottle may may help a lot
3: Thank you so much. Um, I've, I, I hate to do this, but now we have to play a very silly game show. <laughs> of course. <laughs> um, but this, I mean, I think this is such an important topic and conversation. And we're so thankful that you took the time. Yeah. And, and, and now we have to yeah, waste your this, time. Now we have to waste your time. <laughs> <laughs> it's fine.
1: I love a game show. Just because I do this doesn't mean I don't have fun sometimes. I tell that to people, too.
0: Yeah, you're like, I'm fun. I'm so yeah. much fun. Or there's we a sense fun. that if you deal that if
1: you're seeing
3: suffering all the time, that it will suck up your ability to feel joy. Yeah. So it can feel scary to to let yourself see the suffering.
1: No, that yeah, sense. that's that's like a very real thing where like I think that's part of the reason why people ignore unhoused people. Like it makes people uncomfortable to come into contact with someone that's facing that kind of misfortune. But I think affirmatively, like uh, doing a little bit is good for your soul. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, and it building these relationships is also good for your soul. Like just being a good neighbor to the neighbors that you have outside is good for society. It's good for them and it's good for you.
3: Right. And it doesn't have to become your whole life, if that makes yeah. sense. Like you can, e- learning how to be able to maybe go there for the day and not bring it home with you because then it's not as, it's not as hard to go there for the day. Mm
1: -hmm. Yeah, we actually have a hangout like debrief session after every outreach where we like go to a brewery and like hang out and like talk it out because we know it's difficult. Um, And then when you have people who also did the exact same thing as you or who have been doing it for a long time, like there's a lot of like, oh man, I saw like awful stuff today or like, you know, during the rain, it was like really tough. And it's like, well, we're doing the best we can. We gave people like a bunch of tarps and tents that they otherwise would not have. Like a lot of people are sleeping warmer tonight because we went out and did this. And I'm annoyingly optimistic, like as a person, like I believe this is going to get better. I do believe that people are learning information that they otherwise didn't have before. Mm -hmm. I do think people are like demanding more of our politicians. And I do think there's a lot more people that care that otherwise would you know, be, you know, ostrich in the, in the sand because we're out here talking about this and saying these things. Definitely. Yeah. Well, thank you.
3: Hypotheticals is a game show (laughs) where you and Gabe are my contestants. I'm going to give you a series of hypothetical situations. You can ask any clarifying questions you might have. And then you tell me what you would do in that situation. And I determine whose answer I
0: like better. It's very unfair. Very unfair.
3: Okay, our first game is America's favorite game show. Would you stay with this cheater? You have made a series of financial mistakes that has made it so you have had to sell off your partner of 16 years' prized cockatoo collection. They are incredibly upset about this loss, but go to sell the collection. They meet up with the buyer, another lover of cockatoos, something you've never really understood, and they end up having a passionate trice. Would you forgive this cheater who was in the throes of loss and seeking connection with someone who would understand their
0: pain? It, trist. Trist, what'd I say? Trist. That's very close. Um, wow. Okay. <laughs> How many cockatoos are in the collection? I should clarify that they're not alive. Oh my god. They're yes. dead? These
3: are okay, stuffed. Okay, then he
1: doesn't have any excuse. If they were alive. No, these are stuffed.
3: Either stuffed okay. cockatoos or or cockatoo statues or cockatoo art, but there's 75 pieces in the cockatoo collection. Okay,
0: wow. I was misled. I thought <laughs> I was making my partner sell his pets, and I felt I, yeah, terrible. That's exactly <laughs> what
1: I thought. I, I had sympathy. I was like, okay, well, 75 pets that like are alive, Then
0: those things live for a long time. They live like yeah, 40 years or something. Oh my gosh, cockatoos? But, I yeah, knew parrots did, but they wow. live forever. Wow. Andre, you know what would you do?
1: I felt sympathy when they were pets, like you did. But now that I know they were dead, that's like selling stuffed animals. You you went and slept with someone else because we had to sell your stuffed animal collection. Like, no, that's that's not. I don't care. You can rebuy that when we're financially better. You don't get to sleep forty five pets. I understand stuffed the stuffed ones. That clarifying factor. Zero sympathy. I would. And I some would dump
0: figurines, che- not just all stuff.
1: Okay, no, I'm (laughs) dumping that cheater.
0: I think some, I think honestly, maybe it's better for them to be with someone who understands this love. So I would say, hey, let's split up and you go be with that other person. Because I feel like like that's who you're really meant to be with.
1: I don't know if marriages are built off of stuffed
0: uh, parakeets. Well, write in, They're built off of shared interests. Yeah, Yeah, that's true. I think also like whatever you're saying, you could buy them back. But what if it's like a rare cockatoo painting that's like rare? Well, it would go to this collector. This collector would be the one that had it. The person that they slept with. And they're apparently very friendly with you
1: because they slept with you. So they would probably let you buy your collection back. I don't know.
3: They're known to be rather ruthless in the cockatoo world.
0: Well, okay, then then my (laughs) partner should be with them. Yeah. Keep their collection. Be with this other person who clearly has a lot of money. And like loves cockatoos, and I'll just go back to having like a normal life with zero cockatoos in it.
1: Imagine what your house looks like. Right? <laughs>
3: like, it looks so much cockatoos better now.
0: In it. So much better now.
3: The devil's advocate thing is that before you were the one in trouble, right? Because you had made these mistakes that had led to selling, but now your partner has cheated on you. So now, are you guys just even again?
0: Oh, my God. Oh <laughs>
1: no, my God. Fi- a financial mistake is not the same as infidelity. That's very true. Funny enough, earlier this year, my husband forgot to send the rent check one month and <gasps> oh we no. got like a vague, very scary notice from our landlord. Um, and he's like, oh, my God. You know, like I fucked up. I fucked up and was like freaking out about it. But like that in its sense, like a big financial error is not Equated to infidelity.
3: To be fair, the financial error was that they invested all of your savings in this company that was going to make ice cream into tiny frozen balls, not realizing that Dip and Dots was already doing that.
0: Are you kidding me? <laughs> I thought you were going to say my like mistake.
1: <laughs> it was like Juicero or something. Like they invested all their money into one of those. Like they invested into something that already
3: existed and wasn't really in demand.
0: Oh, my God. Well, then they should
1: dump me for making dumb choices instead of having. We just shouldn't be together. Yeah.
0: Nobody. Everyone should mutually dump. (laughs) Okay, that's a good. I
1: accept this answer.
0: Yeah. Split up amicably. Shake hands. Say, have fun with your cockatoos. I'm going to get my money. Wait, wait a minute. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. If I lost the money and we split up, do I still get my share of the money? Well, you had to pay off. You had to pay off debts. I know with their cockatoo money, but if we break up, they they could go, it's "It's not really my
3: problem. It's California, so there's a lot of like, it's shared. Oh, okay. Like shared stuff. Anyway. I'm getting palimony. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, our next game. Are you a terrible parent? You find out that your child, 14, has been playing a prank on your neighbor by calling and pretending to be a documentary crew Taking a survey of, quote, ordinary people, you make your kid apologize, but the neighbor doesn't accept it. And for the next six years until you move, the neighbor shouts, that child is not a good person. Every time they
0: see your kid, are you a terrible parent? So my kid is 20 by the time this, ha- this ends? Yeah. So they like at some point, let's say they went to college. 18 to 20. Oh, they they went to local college and they're home all the time. Yeah, okay, interesting. What were they asking them for the survey? They were
3: asking just like a lot of deeply, deeply personal questions um, for the survey. Okay,
0: I think it's on the neighbor because the neighbor shouldn't have just answered questions over the phone like that.
1: Yeah, I would very much doubt your capabilities if you were telling someone like your deepest like divorce stories or something over the phone to an anonymous voice yeah i think a lot of people would do that well if they yeah
3: caught, if they're caught at the right moment yes. and they get to think they're part of a survey not even a survey a it's documentary. like a
0: psychic you yeah. know what i mean like you call a psychic and tell them all your problems
1: I would be mad at my kid for like a little bit. But once they apologize, like that's unhinged behavior to hold a grudge that long. And I would be kind of mad at you for being mean to my kid disproportionately.
3: Well, right. But the part is of are, of you being a terrible parent is, it? are you terrible that you made them apologize, which outed them as the prankster, which caused six years of
1: being shouted at?
0: Oh, they didn't know that it was my kid. I like You're affirmatively. Li- yeah. That
1: mm-hmm. doesn't sound like me, honestly. <laughs>
0: I feel like I would just be like, that's hilarious, but you have to stop. Yeah, that literally would be my reaction. The scenario for this game is you did tell on your kid, yeah, okay,
3: which so caused
0: the act. You're a terrible parent. Because you shouldn't have told on your kid? No, because you you and your kid are a team. <laughs> and and you're up against the world. And if you're, I would just be like, look, man, that's so funny, but you got to cut it out. <laughs> so you're a terrible parent for making them lie.
3: Not lie, for making for them... For making them
0: tell the truth. Sorry. Yeah.
3: All right. I agree with that. I think, yeah. I think the move is like, oh, my God, that's very funny, but don't do that anymore. (laughs) Very (laughs) accurate response for
0: me. Call like a call like a big box store. You know what I mean? Don't call our neighbor. Call like a. You want them to continue to do this? Okay, you're right. Don't you're right. Don't you're right. Don't or at least record it for TikTok and then make content.
1: Oh, no. All right. Oh, man, you're going to become a TikTok parent.
0: I am. Well, I'm not having kids, (laughs) but, you know, like that's there's fun. There's people that do prank calls on TikTok. I find them very funny.
3: I had a meeting yesterday with like a a genetic counselor about something. And she was like, okay, so do you have any children? And I was like, no. And she was like, "And why didn't you have children? I was like, what do you mean? I'm only 33. I might still have children. And she like made it. She made me feel like I, I was like menopausal.
0: Oh she was like, and,
1: and your decision to definitively not have children.
0: <laughs> oh, my God. My friend had a
1: baby when she was like 33 and they call that a geriatric pregnancy. Like they, that's, that's the name for it. I thought that was at 35. Something like that. She's yeah, like yeah. in her early 30s, but they could like big label on her folders Ugh. and everything. And it was like geriatric
0: pregnancy. My mom was in her mid to late 30s when she had me and my sister. And yeah. I turned out fine.
3: I know. I, I I found the exchange shocking. And maybe I misunderstood, but it, it definitely was a sense of like, and that time has passed for you. No, a lot
0: of women probably <laughs> feel that way. A lot of women have had that experience, I bet.
3: Yeah. All right. Our final game. Is this a date? You have fallen down a well by mistake. Oh my God. When you arrive at the bottom, okay. there is another person Shut there up. who has Shut already up. fallen down the well as well. Shut up. When you ask if you two should call for help, They say, why don't we get to know each other a bit first? Is this a date?
0: That's kidnapping. (laughs) Oh, my God. I'd be suspicious that they, like, put something that made me trip in the well because they were literally. That sounds like you're a hostage.
3: Interesting. I would assume that they had just already tried calling for help and that they were just so starved for human interaction that they just wanted a quick convo first.
0: No, you get you. Now both of your voices can yell for help. Yeah. Does your That's, phone not work at the bottom of the well? No, yeah. It's a, it's a dead zone. Oh, it's a dead zone? <laughs> it's a dead zone. Oh, okay. Why was I near a well?
3: You were on a, like, kind of long walk, sort of, like, thinking about life through this big field, and you fell right into a well.
0: Okay. <laughs> I think this person and I are bonded, but I don't think, like, how did they get in the well? They also were on a long walk thinking okay, about life. And shared interests are really important. Oh, and you my sit down goodness. and you go, hey, how do you feel about cockatoos? And they go, hate them. And you go, wow, we're meant to be. This is a date. This <laughs> is that sounds a like date. Stockholm syndrome.
1: You've already been Stockholm syndrome and you're not in the well right now. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> the moment I'm near that well, I'm all in. Yeah. No, I'd be very suspicious. I'd be very suspicious. First of okay. all, what are you doing in the well? Second right. of all. Well, it's weird to be
3: judgmental
1: of someone else when you're in the well as well. Okay, that's true. Who wouldn't? Nothing has ever stopped me from being judgmental, first of all. But second of all, <laughs> I would be so scared of not getting out of the well that, like, I can't even fathom. Maybe, like, when you're chilling out six hours later and you haven't gotten out, then that's the time for small talk. But the first, like, five hours, I'm like panicking. I'm like trying to climb up the yeah. wall. I'm like, right. trying to, like, do you have a belt that we can.
3: Right. Because with two people, there's different things you can do to get out of the well. Right. Stuff. Yeah. Right
1: do the like what the if- back to back crawl.
0: Oh,
3: did, smart. You know? Oh, Something That's really that.
0: smart. Yeah. Wow. wow, that's really smart and I would not have thought of that.
3: I if I ever fall down a well, I
0: hope it's with you. I'm on <laughs> it. We're getting out of the well. <laughs> I'm scared of the dark, so I can't be down there. Oh. I would think that that person like has like lives in that well, but there's like a secret door and they're just coming from their like underground lab. And they just wanted to trap someone in the well and they got, and they were like, they wanted to have a human connection.
1: This is a very Last of Us inspired question. Yeah. I've never seen it. Okay. There's a, no spoilers, but there's a, there's a trap hole in the ground and then those people end up in a relationship. So. What? Yeah.
0: They
3: should have hired me to write on that show. They
0: really should (laughs) have.
3: Oh my gosh. Well, thank you so much for joining us. Where can people find you and more about what you're doing and places to volunteer and donate?
1: Yeah. K-Town for All. Uh, Venmo for donations. Uh, Twitter, K-Town for All. Instagram, K-Town for All. We're very active on social media. If you ever want to join us, we have outreach every single Saturday, other than the first Saturday of the month when we have our general meeting. And then during the week, we do things like this. Uh, We do interviews. We do press. We do uh, mobilizations to City Hall. We tell people when to give public comment on stuff that's being voted on. So, you know, if you want to get plugged in, uh, whether you want to actually go out and do outreach, whether you want to build our kits, we make hygiene kits and we need people to put those together every week. Um, If you're really good at graphic design, if you're good at interviews, if you're good at public media, we have a place for everyone to do a little bit of something. So please uh, get in touch with us. We're always happy to have new members. There's a couple, lots of dozens of us that would love your help in whatever way you can. Thank Thank you so much. Thank you
3: so much. Stick around after the break. We'll be talking all about the WGA strike.
0: Just between us, it's time for topics. X X X X X baby, baby, ooh, ooh. <laughs> oh, a little,
3: a little tiny one. Very fun. I love doing silly voices. You do? Yes.
0: I
2: hate them. You love them. You're lying. You love them.
0: You can't <laughs> get enough. You are absolutely lying.
3: I thought we should make this the topic because I think people who aren't in the entertainment industry probably don't really know what's going. On Mm -hmm. and might be being fed misinformation about what's going on. Mm -hmm. And so I wanted to talk about we're recording this on April 21st, and there's basically negotiations happening right now between the WGA, which is the Writers Guild of America, um, which represents a lot of writers who have gotten into the union. So Mm -hmm. it's like a really big deal to get into the union, and then the union really fights for its members. The union provides health care. If you reach a certain threshold of income per year. It establishes minimum payments. It sort of like sets the rules for what rules the studios have to then abide by when they're hiring WGA writers. And Mm -hmm. pretty much all of the scripted shows that you see on TV are WGA writers. Um, That's not true of reality TV, but a lot like, you know, most of your favorite stuff out there is being created and written by WGA writers. Mm -hmm. And, Basically, we're at an impasse because these studios um, and streamers are making like record profits, but the income for writers has gone down. Like I saw something I should probably fact check more before this segment, but like Writers are being paid less than ever (laughs) than they Mm -hmm. were in the past Mm -hmm. while profits have gone up and also cost of living has gone up. So you have all these writers who are like writing on TV shows and not able to make a living wage or not able to support themselves in Los Angeles the way they used to be able to. And so what the guild did was they they asked the members for strike authorization which is basically permission to strike. Mm -hmm. So if they can't come to a deal with the studios about a couple key issues that they're fighting for, the Guild is authorized to strike on May 1st, which means that every show would shut down, Mm -hmm. um, at least shut down writing-wise. This has happened, the last time this happened, I believe was in 2007. And you might notice some of your favorite shows, the second half was terrible. Um, Yeah,
2: (laughs) scabs. Because they didn't have, what? (laughs) Scabs.
0: Yeah. A bunch of shows that you loved, if you were like, what the what fuck happened? happened to them in 2007, it's because of the writer's strike. A lot of reality TV started getting made. Yes. Yeah, so Bad TV. reality TV.
2: It killed my soap operas. <laughs> <laughs> no, but that's like yeah. part of it. Yeah. Because- so, so,
3: soap operas are in the guild too. Yes. Soap opera writers. And so, and and even beyond the writers, all those production sets are going to shut down, mm-hmm. right? So, like, all these crew members are going mm-hmm. to lose their jobs for however long the strike is. And the studios make it seem like it's the writers being, you know, asking for too much. And it's on the writers that all of this work is going to stop. But the reality is it's on the studios for not paying people fairly. And it's on the, and the studios could so easily step up and meet the demands. And they're not. (laughs) Or at least at this moment in time.
0: It's not just like, oh, uh, the writers are asking for more, blah, blah, blah. It's like they're, the, making record profits off yes. of streaming. Right. They won't allow that to, to go to the people who make the content.
2: Yes. And then also it's not just the money. It's also that writers aren't being trained properly to become producers. So they can't move up. A lot of right. writers are just staying at staff level because seasons are a lot shorter and truncated now. Like a lot of sh- seasons are just eight episodes. Right. So by the time the show goes into production... They've moved on to another show. And now that they won't have writer, usually, on, well, in the past, the writer would be on set mm-hmm. for their episode. But they don't
3: even, they don't even like budget for that. Yes. So, so, so like,
2: cause they've moved. Well, they, I don't even know
3: if they've moved on. It's more just, they're not, they're not, it's like my friend writes on only murders in the building and he had to fly his own way to go to New York to be on set for his episode.
2: Because Were they still in production, like writing the he show? Was,
3: yeah,
0: he was. Oh. Yeah, so I think I think it's both. Yeah, so you're not gaining the skills to, to be, be able a showrunner to, runner, to a, yeah. a
2: supervising producer to be an EP. Like you're right. not getting those skills, right? Or to even be in the editing bay too, right?
3: And then another big issue is all of these shows are having mini rooms. Yes. And so a mini room means it's like maybe
2: like four people. Mm -hmm. Whereas like in the past, maybe two two in the EP. And
3: like in the past, you would have a a room of maybe, let's say, 10 people. And among those 10, you have some higher up writers. But Mm -hmm. then you also have like story editors who are lower on the totem pole. And then you have staff writers, which is the entry level. And so you you allowed to hire all these different levels of writers. Mm -hmm. But with mini rooms, only
2: high up writers are getting work. Or what they're doing is they'll have the high up writers and then invite people that aren't even in the guild and not say that it is like a room or something. So So then they're they're bringing them as consultants when they should be getting writing credits on it. And they're not getting that at all. And they're not even getting the way to get into the room or get into the WGA.
3: And then you have these shows that are like, okay, it's only eight episodes, but it's going to take six months. And mm-hmm. then you're not being paid fairly because you're being paid per episode, Like yeah. right? So it, the, everything has been disrupted mm-hmm. in the way how things used to work mm-hmm. and all of the disruptions have made it so that writers are getting like the bad end of the stick.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, the other big thing is that it's not allowing for the diversity required for what's happening in front of the camera, so like there'll be I know multiple shows that have trans mask characters and no trans mask writers in the writers room, and that's because people aren't uh, at the level or mm. or it does you can't afford if you're a marginalized person to try to become a staff writer. Because you have to work your day job or you have to like, you can't, there's no ability to get, it's like a privileged business to be in where like, hopefully your parents can cover your ass because you're not going to be able to like make a living wage doing it.
3: Yeah. I saw someone was like at an award show for having like written on the bear. Right. And like, Mm -hmm. they were like, my bank account was negative. Yes, like my friends and family had to like buy my suit. Like yes. I think you know, it used to be that if you were a working writer in Hollywood, you made a good living and could support yourself. A great living, a great support living. Support your family well, back in the day with residuals. Yes, yeah, that's great what I'm living. talking about. Yeah, but like you know, in recent years with these with these changes and shifts, it's just become like untenable, and it's and it's going to like Melissa was alluding to like lead to just like a generation of of people who have no idea how to
0: run a TV mm. show and that's important to you guys. And I know it seems like frivolous, but think about how important representation has been to you. Think about the comfort that, you know, when someone in my life passed away, the amount of content that I watched in order to feel better, like all of this stuff is around us all the time. Part of our lives in a way that you're like, well, it's just TV, but it's not just TV. No.
3: And it's going to be movies. I mean, things are going to shut down. But it's this really interesting moment of like, and it's interesting in connection with the housing crisis conversation Mm -hmm. where like things have have become so bad. There's like a collective agreement that it has to get worse to get better. Yeah. Yeah. Because what's what's happening now can't continue and yeah. so you have all these really amazing high-powered writers who quite honestly don't need the strike who mm-hmm. like will always have work who've made enough yeah. money and they're out there being like we have to strike yeah yep because they know that it's like not the, the industry is is failing the the people that create the industry right <laughs> um and it and and because of a union that kind of pushback is possible where like with the housing crisis, I feel like, so there's no
0: version of that.
3: Right. Unless like all of the uh, Los Angeles went on strike.
2: Mm -hmm.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I also think, I mean, there's like streaming really changed a lot of, of stuff. And I know friends who, you know, stuff gets streamed and they don't get any money from that or they don't get like one of my friends just was like, found out that she was like, Oh, my show is like on another streaming network. I had no idea. I'm not getting anything from it airing in this place. Like, it's something that she made and put her, you know, heart and soul into. Like, it's very, and it's something that was, you know, for queer people. So it's just kind of this, it's going to affect, like, you're saying, oh, I want these shows to continue or you get upset when something gets canceled or you get upset when, like, a character is portrayed incorrectly from, like, a marginalized group. Like, this is uh, is why...
3: Well, I just think there's going to be a lot of messaging out there that it's the writers and they're the problem and they're asking for too much. This is the alert that that's not the case. (laughs) We're not
2: even getting, a lot of writers aren't even getting like the bare minimum to live. So it's not asking too much, it's asking what you deserve. Right. And the hours are long.
3: Don't fall for the propaganda coming out of the studios. um, Yeah. And support the writers. Yes. Yeah. Support fair wages. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And support my sub stack. I'm <laughs> just kidding. <laughs> I just had to do a callback. <laughs> no, I love that.
0: What do we rate this episode? I rate it 14 out of 9 K-Towns for All. Mm.
2: I'll rate it 30 out of 10. You're both doing a good job.
0: Hey,
3: thanks, man. Oh, You're thank welcome. you. Oh, my. I'll rate it 172 I love a seven. I always say in the seven. 172. Sevens, I feel like. 172 out of 23, Ooh. all different kinds of tape.
0: Ooh, trance tape.
3: Painter's tape. Painter's tape. Masking tape. All ta- I just love tape. Duct. Duct tape. Good tape. <laughs> yeah.
0: <laughs> Thank you to Andreina Niss for being our guest.
3: Just Between Us is a Forever Dog production hosted by me, Alison Raskin. And me, Gabe Dunn. Produced by Melissa diamond Month. Edited by Coco Lorenz. Executive produced by Brett Boehm, Joe
0: Cilio, and Alex Ramsey.
3: And I'm on TikTok as Dabby Gun, So branding's
0: going really well over here. Yeah, good luck finding us. Forever! Dog!